Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where we attempt to get out of the way and let the Bible speak, revealing the person and presence of King Jesus today. Man. Let's start with something fun, shall we? Because we're going to in, jump in, and you know how I do. We're going to dive in deep. So, I mean, that's just the way it is. Let's start with something fun. Um, at, how many of you know it's flounder season? Come on, has anybody caught a flounder yet during flounder season? Yet a couple people? I mean, there, there's not very many hands up. I mean, come on. Okay, well, we were down on, we, we have a dock at the end of our street, so Abby and our kids and I were down on the dock yesterday, and we showed up with a couple of our little flounder rods, and there's about a dozen guys fishing. Guess what? Hadn't caught a thing. So we just roll by. I'm asking what kind of bait you're using. I'm not very much of a fisherman. I'm like a little bit of a fisherman, not much. And uh, so the kids are there. So we throw the cast net and get some bait. And the kids are playing with these little fish, picking them up out of the bucket, you know, all the stuff, squealing and whatever. And uh, so uh, we, we bait up. Then in addition to the, about a dozen guys, there's these eight sort of young men, like young teenagers maybe, um, eight to, I don't know, 14. And they're all fishing. Nobody's caught a flounder. Everybody's catching, you know, fishing for flounder. So Abby walks down to the end of the dock, throws out her pole about 15 times, and reels in a 20-inch flounder. And one by one, all these guys come walking, kind of real slowly waltzing over to, like, peer in the bucket at how big this 3.1, you know, 20-inch flounder. I'm like, come on, girl. That's my Abby. (laughs) So one of them looked at me and said, do you want everybody to know that your wife caught the fish? I was like, Yep. (laughs) So guess what? We had fried flounder and tartar sauce for dinner last night. Okay. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. We are in John 20. We're going through the book of John. We're coming to the very end of John. Um, Powerful, powerful book. Um, I am, this is very unusual for me, but I am only going to read five verses. I mean, you believe that? Just five. Um, And I'm actually going to read them, and then we're going to talk about them. So I'm actually going to have you all stand for the reading of God's Word today, because we're only reading five verses. John 20, we're going to start in verse 19, and we're going through 23. I'm reading out of the NIV. Scroll along, open along, however you're reading along. Let's do this together. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, so this is Easter night. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus Jesus came and stood among them. So what did he walk through? the locked doors. And he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side where the spear went in. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Lord Jesus, would you come into this place? Would you be Lord in our lives, in this room, in our families, in our marriages, with our kids, with our roommates, at our jobs? Father, would you open the word to us? Would you encounter us? Would you speak to us? Would you shape us? Would you fill us? Would you form us? And may our one affection, our one affection in life be you, King Jesus. In the mighty name, the one and only name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. You may sit down. Here's what we're going to meander through this morning. Um, We're going to meander through this idea of Jesus through the locked doors. Um, We're going to pivot into some of our locked doors. What what, what could those be? We're going to talk about this idea that Jesus said twice, peace be with you, because I think it's really easy to miss what what he's saying there. Shalom is the Old Testament word for that. That's what he he may have even said to them that day. Shalom, peace be with you. Um, We're going to talk about Jesus uh, showing them his hands and his sides. And then this commission, as God has sent me, I'm going to turn around and send you. Um, and then this whole idea of Jesus um, breathing on them. And that's reminiscent of Pentecost that's coming in the book of Acts, which we may continue on into the book of Acts after we finish John. <clears throat> and then we're going to talk about him sending them out. And then we're going to land with this idea of if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. What does that mean? So um, let's, let's give a little uh, context here, and maybe even before we do that, I want to open up and share um, probably vulnerably for just a moment. Um, I uh, walked with the Lord pretty powerfully as a young man up until about age 19, and I, I was the perfect storm for a number of reasons, um, but I went through a very dark uh, season of my life from age, it was late 18, early 19, to the time I was 26, almost 27. It was like this uh, seven-year run. Some of you know my story, some of you don't. Um, but the important thing about it is that by the time I was 26 and turning 27 is that I had found myself in a place where I was in bondage mentally, um, emotionally, um, spiritually, um, I, I had, my mind had grown dark. Um, I was even in bondage financially, um, sexually. I mean, there was an array of things where I was in a darkened state and in a darkened um, place. And in my life, the Lord Jesus walked through the locked doors. And he began a journey of setting me free. And what I want to open up for you this morning is this idea that no matter what you have come from or come out of or currently are experiencing, this is the Jesus that actually wants to walk through the walls, through the closed doors, into your life, and then to lead you out into life and freedom. Okay, This is this Jesus who, um, he is the life, he is the way, he is the truth, and he leads us into freedom. I went back and forth on whether I wanted to share this, but I'm going to share it anyway. One of the things that he did when he walked into my life is I actually had an open vision, like, whoa, and it was scary. I'm not going to tell you all that it was, but it was the enemy of our soul. Satan was dragging me um, to hell, and I went, whoa. Now, it's interesting because in a lot of charismatic and even Pentecostal circles, there's this elevation of things like 
vision or a prophetic word or, you know, people with manifestations of the Spirit. And oftentimes those things are indicators in their minds, in certain people's minds, of spiritual maturity. Now, in my case, what was seeing an open vision? Was it an indicator of spiritual maturity? What was it an indicator of? Bondage. My own sin my own deception, and my consistent hard-heartedness over a seven-year run to listen to the still, small nudge and voice of the Holy Spirit in my life. So finally, the Lord, like, turned on the sirens and went, hello! And he walked through these locked doors into my life. I think the goal of the Christian life, the goal of this Jesus, the goal of the New Testament is not that we would experience necessarily external signs and wonders and manifestations. And that certainly should not be the measure of how spiritual we are. The measure of where we are in the Jesus journey is how much control of our lives have we given over to him. You follow me? That's why I use this word surrendered. What's, what's the American version of surrendered? Our whole church mission is leading people to become fully surrendered followers of Christ. The measure of where you are is how much control or how surrendered is your life in every single component and area to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. That's the measure of maturity. Will signs and wonders come? Yes. Do we pray for them? Absolutely. That's not the ultimate. Don't get confused. Okay, let's keep going. Um, the time of this event, this passage we just read, um, this is the evening of the first day of the week. It's Easter Sunday. It's the same day that Mary of Magdala just saw the risen Jesus. If you weren't here last week, go back and, and listen um, to that one. It is likely that the disciples um, continued to meet in the upper room, which is where the Last Supper had been held. It's probably a guy named John Mark's house. Um, it's probably his mom's house, actually. Um, and they were meeting, and as they were meeting, what, what was their emotional state based on what we just read? Fear, okay? And I would actually say if we dig in here to the Greek and to what's being said, I think what they were in was probably something more like um, terror, um, or scared stiff. I mean, they were like, they, they were, um, you, you even get this idea here that not only was the door locked, so they're in this upper room, they're huddled, the, the blinds have been pulled of whatever uh, windows exist. They've probably taken the table and they put it in front of the door. They've piled chairs in front of the door and they're all huddled in this small space and they're sort of like, do we believe in this Jesus? What just happened? Where are we really? And they're, they're listening probably to every little creak in the floor and every little voice that's outside um, of the house. And they're just scared to death that the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders or the Pharisees are going to come marching up these steps to their upper room. And what are they going to do? They're afraid they're going to open that door, knock it down, and haul them away and crucify these disciples. So the fear that they're experiencing, the anxiety that they're experiencing, um, the, the, the fear of uh, what is God going to do? How is he going to provide? Where are we going to go? Have I wasted the last three years of my life? W what in the world have I been doing? And where did this Jesus that I've invested everything into go? Why is he no longer here? And what does this mean for us? That's what's happening, I think, inside of them. They're all there except Thomas. We'll deal with that next week. So um, I would say, let me just say it very clearly, fear's taken hold, depression's taken hold, darkness has taken hold, uncertainty's taken hold, anxiety has taken hold. And if we're not careful, the church, I'd even, let me speak broadly, not just salt box, but to the American church. If we're not careful, the American church has a propensity to lock ourselves inside our doors. 
You hear me? We have a propensity to make this an us and them kind of thing, and we're in here, and everybody else is out there, and, and I'm going to be delicate with this, but I do want to like, you know, shoot a little bullseye arrow at it. On both sides, I don't preach politics, never do, but on both sides of the political spectrum, far left and far right, the further you get out towards those extremes, what happens is you end up locking yourself inside for fear of what's going on out there. And see so what Jesus actually uh, does in this passage is he walks into the locked room, he speaks some things to them, and then the indication is at the end of this little passage we just read, what happens to Jesus? We're reading between the lines now. So we're making some assumptions, we're looking at the context, we're looking at the hermeneutics. Where does Jesus go? So at the end of this, when it says, um, verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, verse 24, total different change, different day. Uh, so, so what happens then at the end of that? Jesus is standing with them. He's showing them his hands. He's showing them his sides. They're interacting with one another. They're overjoyed. We haven't wasted our lives. We don't have to live in anxiety and feel, okay. It's like all this is rising up within them. And then where does Jesus go? He probably rolls back through the walls. Okay through the locked doors. He's even sort of exemplifying what our probably heavenly bodies will look like once we pass through um, death into eternal life in Jesus. So Jesus now leaves, and where are the disciples left? They're still locked in the dark, right? They're hiding. The furniture's still piled up. Jesus was here, and now he's... What do we do? So what do they do? Like, go there a second. Like, like, I mean, like, put yourself in this scenario. You're scared to death. You're scared of your, your life. You're feeling anxiety and depression and uncertainty and all these things. Jesus walks in, and we're going to get into peace be with you and his commission and what he said. But in that moment, he tells you what he's going to tell you. You get to see these, these nail punctures um, and the, the puncture of the spear. You see these wounds. And I can't wait. I tell you, when I walk into eternity, one of the things I'm going to do is go up to the Lord Jesus and say, show me the nail marks. Show me the spear mark. I want to see it. I want to see it. And he's going to show me. But then Jesus walks out of the room, and what are they left to do? Like, go there a second. What do they have to do next to fulfill what he has said? Just like the Father sent me, I am sending you. Okay, so what do we have to do with the pile of furniture that's at the door? Move it. What do we have to do with the lock that's on the door? Unlock it. What do we have to do with the door that's shut? I mean, you've you, you got to get this idea, church, that, it, that when Jesus comes in and invites you to life and to wholeness and to freedom, you actually, there's a component of your own companionship and obedience with him where when he walks back out, you now have a responsibility to get up and move the furniture and un, unbolt bolts and open the door so that you can walk out and participate with him in life. You follow me? Now, let's, let's just like pivot a second. Um, let's make two comments and let's pivot into our, our locked doors. When you lock yourself inside, where is everybody else? A lot of Christians do this. I think like COVID has been devastating for a lot of Christians. I'm not saying anything about COVID. I'm not, I'm not making a political statement. Don't go there. But I am saying it has isolated people in a way that is detrimental and there's many Christians who, if you're not careful, you're going to isolate yourself. You're going to lock yourself in your own little thing. 
So when you lock yourself in, you also lock everyone else out. When you lock yourself inside, you're also locking out God. Now, can he walk through the walls? Yes. If the disciples had not moved the furniture, undeadbolted, opened the door, what do you think would have happened next? Like, mull that a second. How long would they have camped out in that room? Would Jesus have shown back up to them? Knowing his character? Probably. But go there just a second. When Jesus initiates or invites you into something, if you don't stand up at the end of that and act in obedience and companionship with him, you're left in the dark, locked in your room. You hear me? Okay. So let's just talk about our locked doors. I just want to open this. There's going to be many, many more. So here's what your job is in this moment. Your job is now to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, not the voice of Michael, and go, Lord, what are my locked doors? What are my locked rooms? Let me give you some examples. They might be words that your parents or siblings or peers have spoken over you. You're a failure. You're never going to measure up. You do everything wrong. And we take these words and we assimilate them into our little being, sometimes as little people, sometimes as older people. And they become rooms in which we are locked. And God is always knocking. In fact, Revelation 3.20 actually says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Sometimes Jesus walks through the walls. Sometimes he just stands at the doors and knocks. But the things in our lives that have become um, places of wounding, places of hurt, places of bitterness, places of disappointment or deception, they can become these places where we are locked inside and people, the community of God, the church of God, the body of Christ, and even God himself can be locked outside. How about our self-talk? Like if we were like, like went around the room and had a, you know, kumbaya group therapy session and we all like truly shared like what our self-talk is, I bet we would be blown away. Our insecurity comes out, our, um, our deepest, darkest stuff come out. We feel like we don't measure up. We're constantly critical of ourselves. We're constantly berating ourselves. And there's a few people that cope with all that by like being superior and they think they're perfect, but... That's unusual, and even if you dig below that, guess what you find? The same junk that the rest of us are carrying around. But, but here's the thing. Your self-talk can become a door or a room in which you lock yourself. I'm a loser. Nobody likes me. I'm no good at this. I don't know what I'm doing. Pivot back to my Abby story. She looked at me, and at the end of it, she said, I'm not even that good of a fisher person. I don't even really know how to bait my hook. Like, what? I just threw it out there and caught the flounder. Did any one of the men on the dock think that? You hear me? You hear the difference between people's perception and what's going on inside of our hearts and our minds? Like, our self-talk must be brought into the Lord, under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Um, it must be that we allow the Holy Spirit to come through the locked doors, we move the furniture, we open the locks, we open the door, and we step with Him out of the darkness into the light. We must. If you've lost, perhaps, a family member, and you're going, 
you're stuck in your um, sadness or your hurt or your disappointment, if you've been abused or violated, um, secrets we carry can become doors that we're locked inside of, something from the past, even a secret sin, a, a guilt or shame. Perhaps as a child, someone hurt you or violated you and you're carrying this inside of you. There comes a time where when Jesus comes through the walls, when he knocks on the door, you have to walk out and begin to risk community, to begin to risk sharing with people, to begin to risk openness, to begin to risk talking with people, to begin to risk getting in a small group and joining a community where you can actually go, I don't know about this and I'm really, I don't like church and I don't know about talking to people and being vulnerable, but I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to step out of my little dark locked room and I'm going to begin to talk about the things that have kept me in bondage. I'm going to begin to talk about the things that have kept me locked in and I'm going to risk following Jesus and engaging with a group of people. And that's essentially what church is. That's what it is. You take that wherever the Holy Spirit will take it, but make a note, circle it in your Bible, locked doors. What are my locked doors? Holy Spirit, would you show me? Holy Spirit, would you speak to me? And follow where he takes you. So then Jesus says um, in verse 19, the end of verse 19, he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. And then he says it again in verse 21, peace be with you. Why is he saying this? How would you feel if somebody walked through the walls? They're already scared. Ooh, we're going to die. And then all of a sudden, boom. How do you think they are now? I mean, they're probably crouching in the corner, hiding like, Jesus walked through the walls. He says it's a, it's a traditional Old Testament Hebrew greeting. It's shalom. Oh, I hope I can do this justice. Lord, help me. Um, so shalom, it's like, it's like how we say hello. Um, so it's like, it's common, but you need to understand something here. It's now magnified under the finished work of the gospel of King Jesus. So um, two Sundays ago, we talked about Jesus' last words on the cross. Anybody remember what that word was? Tetelestai, okay, so it is finished is what he was saying, tetelestai, it is finished. We talked all about what that means and the implications if you want to go back and listen to that. But what he's now saying about um, peace or shalom is, is it's lived in this marriage harmony between tetelestai, it is finished, so it's the finished work of the cross, and then it's peace, shalom. So because of what I've done, because of the price I've paid, because I have conquered death, because I have conquered sin, because I've conquered a addiction, because I've conquered brokenness and abuse and hurt and anything that you have experienced, because I have conquered it, because it is finished, now you can live in peace and soul harmony with God and people. Shalom! So what he's like entering into and opening up even in this thing is he's actually saying, may God deliver you and save you from all your trouble, all your hardship, all your difficulty and all your pain. So when he says shalom, he's like declaring over the disciples the finished work of the cross. And then he's actually saying, may God give you every good thing that you desire for yourself and God desires for you. And then he's saying, now may you have full and unfettered access to the kingdom of God. So it's this like, Shalom, peace be with you. It's this beckoning from the dark room, from the locked place, into the light of Christ, into the person of Christ, into the presence of God, so that you would begin to feel and experience and know and walk in abiding in the wholeness of Christ Jesus and experiencing day by day the shalom of God. 
It's like, oh, it's so good. So, so Paul, the great apostle, he's like, he's like my favorite. Paul is this little crippled guy that by the end walked with busted knees and whatever. Totally true. Bald head, big beard. <clears throat> um, he's my favorite. And he starts every one of his epistles. I looked at every epistle and he starts every epistle with grace and peace. Grace, tetelestai. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. You are welcome now into freedom. And then peace, shalom. So there's this like marriage of grace, tetelestai. It is finished. Jesus paid it all. And now you, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what you're fighting or what you're facing or what disease you're suffering from or where you're walking, you can embrace this heavenly uh, peace that passes all human understanding because we know the ultimate end of the story. We know how it's going to finish at the end. And it might be hard right now, but this Jesus is with you in it. He is not leaving you alone if you're willing to obey him and open that locked door and walk into him, embracing the shalom of heaven, the tetelestai of heaven in this beautiful like synchronization of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the gospel. I mean, that is like, yes, come on, Lord Jesus, set us free to walk in the shalom or the finished work of the cross. I love that after Jesus says this, verse 20, after he said this, Shalom, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw it was the Lord. Listen to me, an encounter with the living Christ is where faith is born. That's what we gather here to do. People don't come and join us at Saltbox because I'm a historian. Somebody said to me, Michael, you like to nerd out on the Bible. It's like, I guess that, I mean, it took me a minute. I was like taken back. I was like, I was like, well, I mean, I love Jesus. Like he has set me free from stuff. You can't even, I love Jesus. I am all in for Jesus. I will walk with Jesus with every fiber of my body till now, till he promotes me into heaven. I am all in. I have given, I'm like, this is it. And, and insofar as the history and the hermeneutics and the theology and all the stuff, further my relationship and surrendering control of my life to King Jesus, experiencing more of the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the power of God, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, then I'm all in on nerding out in the Bible but I'm not interested in a history class. You hear me? Like that's the, that's this pivotal thing. It's like, okay, so Lord help us now as we read your word to understand this context and then to launch into this deep, vibrant, life-changing relationship with you. So the church of the living Christ is where faith grows. And you just get this idea of what that God is actually inviting them um, now to become who we created them to be. You got these uh, so there was 12 of them minus, um, oh, who betrayed him? Judas, thank you. I'm glad y'all know your Bibles. And then uh, Thomas isn't there, so now we have 10 of them left in the room. And Jesus is beckoning and calling these guys out into the fullness of their destiny. Like, come out and experience the kingdom of God and then go and transform the world. It's like, yes, I'm all in. Okay. So then, then Jesus gives them this, um, it's like this uh, charge or like, um, you can almost call it like a charter of the church or a, I don't know, it's just fascinating. But he says to them, um, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. What in the world is, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. 
I would love to have been at the spot in eternity past when the world was created. Um, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Um, Satan comes in and tempts Eve and then Adam and they fall. And I would love to have been in the conversation where Father God looked at the Lord Jesus and said, this is the plan. You will go and live life and ultimately rescue and reconcile all those who say yes in the human race. You will bring them back into full connectivity with God. So this, this moment where um, God sent Jesus must have been absolutely profound. And I can only imagine, I mean, this is totally total conjecture. This is pure Michael. I can't show it to you in scripture, but I can only imagine the final conversation between God the Father and Jesus the Son when he said, you're getting ready to go and you're going to actually go and be born as this little seven or eight pound baby and you're going to be set in a stinking like manger where animals slobber and drool and you're going to be raised in the house of someone who does carpentry and stonemasonry work and you're going to live in some kind of um, poverty and probably even strain of hunger at points and you're going to raise and grow up and then you're going to leave a group of people to life and faith and ultimately you're going to go to a cross and you're going to die and then you're going to be resurrected and then you're going to break the back of death and hell and separation and sin and you're going to come out as a resurrected king. Like I can only imagine the conversation between God the Father and God the Son as he's commissioning him to go. That's one of the things that I, I, when I get there, I'm going to say, will you show me that? Can I like live that with you? Can I see what happened, that intimate companionship and communion between this triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and what must it have been like? And then you got these uh, 10 scared guys locked in a room hiding, and Jesus rolls in with them, and he says, hey, as the Father sent me, I'm now turning around and... Okay. So it means, first of all, that, that Christ Jesus needs the church. Like, like think about this for a minute. Um, we throw around the term body of Christ or the church. So what is the body of Christ? It's like the big church, right? So are you part of the body of Christ? Me? Yeah, okay. So is, is a church in Afghanistan or a church in Iran or a church in China or a church in Cambodia body of Christ? Yeah, okay, so we are the collective body of Christ. I, some people say there's 2.5 billion Christians alive on planet Earth today. Body of Christ? Okay, body of Christ. So, but why would Paul even refer to collective Christians as the body of Christ? Because, and I want you to grasp this and get this, there is a created need. So does God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, do they need us to accomplish their mission, will, and way? Technically, No. But they created a need and they set things into place that they, uh, they said that we would be the body. So you and I become things like hands, feet, face, mouth. So, so we become tangibly the experience that someone has with Christ Jesus. So we become not only members of the larger body, but we carry then the responsibility, just like God eternal sent Jesus to become the babe and to live. Now Jesus is turning around and he's saying, just like God sent me, I'm now sending you. So we become like co-sharers in this vision and mission that God has, has done. It's this mission to restore broken humanity to him. So Every time you get up, every time you go through your day, everywhere you go, you're actually on mission. Like we get all grumpy and the peer person cut us off and, you know, the checkout thing is taking forever and so-and-so did this at work. I mean, I forget my mission faster than anybody I know. Do you hear me? 
How fast do we get grumpy and I'm gonna go lock my door? Come on, you do that too. Don't tell me you don't. If the person next to you doesn't know, you just. What is happening here is so powerful because you have Jesus saying, I was sent, I am sent, I am being sent, and now I am sending you. So there's a created need that we literally become the body of Christ. You are the hands, feet, and face of Jesus. Say, I, here, I want to say something all together, collectively. I want us to say, I am the hands, the feet, and the face of Jesus. Ready? One, two, three. of Jesus. If we got up every day and, and understood both the calling and the purpose and then the responsibility of that, it's like, whoo, you're not wasting your time. I don't know what you're supposed to be doing, but he does. You are called, you are commissioned, you are sent. The, the, the church is to be a mouth that speaks for Jesus, feet that run his errands, hand that does do his work, a face that shows the loving the kindness of God. And, and no doubt it's a created need, but God needs you and God needs me. Now, let's just open a theological door. If Michael jumps off the deep end in two weeks and does something stupid and I, you know, I'm removed from pastoral ministry, what will God do? He'll raise up somebody else. You hear me? I'm not indispensable, but there's a created need for you and for I to engage with the mission of reaching a lost and a broken world. Okay, so number one, it means that Jesus Christ needs the church. It also means that the church needs Jesus. This is the spirit of Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. This is the person of Jesus. So a person who gets sent, what do they have? A sender, okay? So you have this uh, a sender, you have a person that gets sent, so Jesus is sent. So Jesus' very mission that God sent him on is now whose mission? Our mission. I mean, our mission is Jesus' mission. So you, you get to actually experience this idea that without uh, Jesus, the church has no message. Without Jesus, we have no power. Without Jesus, we have no one to turn to when things are difficult or impossible. Without Jesus, we have no one to enlighten our minds and to strengthen our arms and to encourage our hearts and to lift us and send us and fill us. You follow me? So Jesus is the very center of all of this. And we're going to get into it in just a second. But when he goes, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, what you're receiving is the spirit of Jesus. So we as the church are fully dependent upon King Jesus to accomplish the mission of God. Number three, the sending of the church by Jesus is parallel to the sending of the church by God. I already opened this, this door. But I want to, um, this is not meant to drive you or me into performance. You all know, you've heard, if you've been here and listened to me, you know that I am as grace-based as they come. I believe in absolutely radical grace, and that's what transforms the human heart. And, and by him transforming things inside, we begin to do and change the way we live outside. So park that. Okay. <clears throat> um, 
the relationship, so, so how could Jesus be fully unified in mission with God the Father, except that he's continually dependent um, on Yahweh God, he's, he's walking in perfect obedience and perfect love, and he could be God's messenger because he had rendered perfect obedience and perfect love, and he could even die and pay the price for us because you and I have failed and fallen short. He paid it all, he did it all, he broke the back of hell and death. That's why uh, he then, therefore, is this one um, because he obeyed perfectly and loved perfectly. Now, are you and I ever going to attain to that? No. No. So let's go practically then. Like Matthew, I I can't remember where it is. It might be, I don't know, it's in Matthew somewhere. But he says, be perfect as I am perfect. And it's like, what? It's like devastating at first. Like, how do we, but, but what he's saying is not perform better or sit up taller in your seat or read your Bible more or you need to pray more. Or blah, blah. He's not saying any of that. What he's actually saying is recognize that you are so devoid and bankrupt of the ability to be perfect that you come and exchange your brokenness for the life and perfection of Christ in you. Now, it's a constant exchange. So I remind myself most mornings, Michael's been crucified with Christ. How come? I want that guy gone, go, I want more of. So it's this daily, so did I give my life to Jesus when I was four? Yes, but I've been saved, I'm being saved, I'll continue to be saved. There's this process of taking on the character of likeness of Christ where you're daily appropriating your death and, and, and your resurrection then with him where Jesus comes and lives inside of you and even through you. So when he says be perfect, um, or when we look at Jesus' perfect obedience, he could actually say, I'm sending you like the Father has sent me. He's sending it, because, he, or he's saying, it because he was able to be perfectly obedient. Now, let's open this kind of a, a, another deeper layer. Um, <clears throat> Jesus is, uh, let's, let's switch and go here. Okay, um, when Jesus walks through the walls into this little group of disciples who are cowering in the dark, um, what is he identified by? His scars. Is he identified by his regal kingliness? Is he identified by the host of angels that rolled in with him? Is he identified by because the earth quaked or something crazy happened? He's identified by his scars. I want you to understand something. When Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, how will you and I be identified? When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not saying, I'm going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He may. But what he's actually saying is, Jesus is identified by his, and so will you and I. I mean, there is this element, and it's not that meaning we're not going to be whole, but if you're going to walk with Jesus powerfully, if you're going to access the kingdom of God, if you're going to experience the Ruach or the breath of God breathing on you and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, you will be identified by your sacrificial love. And it's actually what people do when it hurts and when it costs them something that matters and probably reflects the character and likeness of Jesus more than anything else. The other thing you see in Jesus is this sacrificial obedience, the cost of the mission. What did Jesus have to lay down to go be an eight-pound baby laid in a stinky, drool-filled animal manger? 
He laid down all of his kingliness, all of his greatness, all of his goodness, the, the ability to dispense the angel armies. He was the creator God that spoke and the world came into existence. He put everything in its place and he steps out of being able to control the stars and the light and the day and the night and the angels and the authority over all of heaven and earth. And he steps into this vulnerable place. So when he says, like the father sent me, I'm now sending you, he's actually saying to us, go and embrace a life of sacrificial love and sacrificial obedience. So it's this like, it's heavy. There's this moment where you're like, oh, let me say it like this. I am convinced that you're never more like Jesus than when you're laying down your life. Okay. The son of man came not to be served, but to, let me kick a can. Um, in many churches, um, there are, even American churches, there, there's this thing that people will do where they'll elevate um, male uh, headship and they'll say, the wife's there to serve, you know, and so the wife's whole job is to make, do everything he wants and, and, and therefore, then the husband can go do their, his job. You ever heard that? Come on, some of you are like, oh. I'd actually go, The one who is most like Christ is the one who's doing what? Laying down their will, laying down their way, laying down their agenda, sacrificial love, sacrificial obedience. The one who is engaging most powerfully with the infilling presence of the Holy Spirit is an engaging with the kingdom of God is the one who is willing to go, Lord Jesus, and look at a, a spouse or a roommate or a friend or a work partner and go, hey, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? You, you hear me? So, like, in our house, if Abby and I get into a fuss, we do that occasionally. Do you believe that? We do. Just ask Abby. But the faster one of us can go, Lord Jesus, would you forgive me for my willfulness and my obstinance? And look at the other one and go, hey, will you forgive me? And let's re-engage with each other in the kingdom of heaven in us and in our home and in our marriage now. The very shalom of heaven then returns into our home. You hear me? So when you go into something to lord your rightness or to elevate yourself or to make yourself more important or look better or whatever you're doing, commanding the people around you to come into subservience to you, you are actually not only not acting like Jesus, you're probably acting like the enemy. <gasps> so when Jesus says, behold, like God sent me, now I am sending you, he is saying, go into a life of sacrificial love and into a life of sacrificial obedience. You can apply that with roommates. You can apply that at your work. You can apply that with friends. You can apply that with family members. You can apply it everywhere. Now, let me make one little caveat statement. I don't have time to unpack it all. I am not suggesting that we should be a weak, boundaryless people and we should take up our place as doormats. I have very strong boundaries in my life. Come cross one and you'll find out. I mean, really. God's not called us to be doormats. But what I am telling you is at the core of your being, if your, your um, ability to grasp that your likeness with Christ Jesus, if he has taken up lordship inside of you, then your entire role is sacrificial love and sacrificial obedience to him. Not to be served, but to serve. Again, Jesus is uh, identified not by his great regal blue garments or whatever, he, you know, a king in that day and age, but rather by his scars. Now, let me shift into something as we, as we just wrestle through this. The church, talk about the American church, the church must never be out to propagate her message. What do I mean by that? 
It must be about propagating the kingdom of God, the person of Jesus. And when a church slips into becoming more about the platform of the pastor or the brand of the church, you're in a dangerous place. If you want to evaluate a church, don't evaluate it by how many manifestations you see or don't see, back to the way I opened this message. Don't evaluate it by the quality of the worship or how good the person is preaching. Evaluate it by, is the kingdom of God preached in this place? Is the person of Jesus elevated or is it become about a platform or a name or a pastor or a recognition? And you be very, very careful when you enter into a place that's lifting any person above the character and likeness of Jesus and you go, Oh, Lord Jesus, you hear me? If you want to evaluate a church or churches, do so by the very mission of Christ Jesus right here. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you into sacrificial love, sacrificial obedience, into the laying down of your life, and uh, into the identification of him with his scars, not with his um, kingly glory, if you will. Okay, so... um, He gives uh, this great purpose. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So say (laughs) you um, you are now and I am now taking up our place as people who share in the eternal purpose of God Almighty. You understand me? So the question for you and I is not what's our purpose or what are we called to do? It's really going to become how are you called to carry out the eternal purposes of King Jesus on the earth? And how are you going to do that in your marriage, with your kids, with your family, with your roommates, at college, at your job, when you're driving down the street? It becomes this moment where you are um, sort of engaging with this life on mission, church on mission, continuation of the mission of King Jesus. That's why we study his life and go, Lord, how can we uh, grasp our destiny that we are that we are people of pure of purpose, that we're now in partnership with Yahweh God to redeem the entire human race. Like you begin to actually get outside of yourself and suddenly, whether you think you're fat or skinny or ugly or cute or popular or not popular or how many people like your Instagram photo or whatever it is, doesn't matter. You hear me? And all of a sudden you're stepping outside of yourself. I love it when I am like most uh, disattached from myself because I'm going, I don't care what anybody thinks. I just want to walk with Jesus. You hear me? It's this place of freedom and life where you're beginning to engage with him at this deep level. And you're beginning to even see people through the lens of the kingdom of God, not through your own ugly judgmental whatevers. You hear me? Come on. You have purpose, you have destiny. He created you for something to be in partnership with him, companionship and participation in the redemption of the entire human race. All right, let's pivot to this next part. And with that, he breathed on them. Now, a couple chapters later, I think it's Acts 2, when Pentecost happens, it says, uh, chapter Acts 2, verse 2, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. So when Jesus says, it's a precursor to this moment when the Holy Spirit is going to blow in and through uh, the New Testament church and the Holy Spirit is going to be fully um, revealed. Uh, in their lives. So just let's wrestle with this just for a minute. Um, Pentecost, uh, the Acts chapter two was about 50 days after Passover. Jesus was killed at 3 p.m. or Jesus gave up his spirit rather at 3 p.m. on Passover. 
Um, So what Jesus is saying here, we're going to try to go like big picture for just a second. When Jesus breathes on them, um, he's referencing all of like rabbinic Old Testament tradition and Hebrew like knowledge that these 10 guys have. And what he's actually referencing is Genesis 2-7, where it says, then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. It's the Ruach of God. It's the breath of God. So what he's actually declaring over them, he's tying together Genesis all the way to Revelation, the entirety of the church, past, present, and future. And he's saying, I am going to breathe my spirit, the very spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit onto you and over you be filled. So he's referencing this idea at the beginning of creation when the Ruach of God or the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God breathed life into Adam and Eve for the first time. It's this powerful moment. And then he's also referencing Ezekiel, if you want to cross-reference this, Ezekiel 37.9. Ezekiel was a, was a prophet in the Old Testament. He's standing in this huge valley of dead, dry bones. And he heard God say to the wind, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking the entirety of the Old Testament and he's actually um, with all authority in heaven and earth. It's like when God spoke and created the new he- or the heavens and the earth in the very beginning in Genesis, he's now speaking and he's saying, my ruach, my wind, the breath of God, Yahweh means breath. And so he's saying, he's breathing into this hovering over water, these dry bones, these men, these 10 guys, boys that are cowering in a room, terrified and scared to death. He is breathing creation and then recreation over them, raising them up like a, like a dead dry bones in a valley. He is raising them up to life in Christ. And then he's galvanizing them and sending them out. So it becomes this powerful moment where God himself comes and breathes into them. And it's all of a sudden not about you or me. It's about God eternal who is now sourced in us. Do you have enough power to live the Christian life? No. Do you when you exchange your brokenness for the glory of God and the kingdom of God and the presence of God and the infilling power of the Holy Spirit have all power available to you on heaven and earth to live the Christian life? Yes. The question is the depth of your surrender. So Jesus comes into this room and he's referencing Ezekiel. He's referencing Genesis. He's breathing on them. It's like this idea of creation and recreation. People get funny with this and they'll go, I've been prayed for by people and they'll breathe on you. (sighs) You ever experienced that? Could that be real? Maybe. I mean, I think we're supposed to do what Jesus did. Sometimes I'm like, here's a piece of gum. But let me just, like a, like a word of caution. For Jesus to say, receive the Holy Spirit, it requires that he is full of what? The Holy Spirit. So as we go out, be very careful if you're going to breathe on people and say, receive the Holy Spirit, that you are full of him and not you. Now, the other thing, and we'll get into this more if we go into the book of Acts, which I think is where we're headed next, but it would appear to me that there is a, um, there is a, a, you become a Christian, and then later, 50 days later, these guys are actually filled with the Holy Spirit. So it appears to me that, uh, so, so in your opinion, 10 guys sitting in a room, are they Christian? Probably, uh, but they're not yet filled with 50 days later, the Holy Spirit's going to come, tongues of fire on their head, violent wind comes through, and all of a sudden they're 
filled. So it appears to me, and, I, and there's different passages that sometimes the Holy Spirit comes at the same point, someone surrenders their life to Jesus, but sometimes there's places where it's a second work. So do you and do I as believers need to be full of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Uh, is it um, potentially a second work of God in your life and my life? Yes. Is it potentially an ongoing work? Yes. But there ought to be a place where you would look at yourself or, or look at a friend and go, I'm not sure that I've ever been filled by the Spirit. Would you pray with me that I could be filled by the Spirit of God? Because it's like trying to drive a car with no gas. Okay? You've got to be filled with the Spirit. I started like I did because people often equate being filled with the Spirit with external manifestations and shenanigans that may or may not indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit. I need to be very careful when we say that external shenanigans indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit. They might and they might not. Fair enough? Okay. Last thing, and then I'm going to have our worship team come out. We're going to close. But Jesus said, um, yeah, y'all come on out. Thank you, Adam. Jesus said, um, if you forgive anyone their sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. I've heard people do all sorts of stuff on this. Um, th- this, is, this is my essential view. One thing is certain. Uh, Michael Mattis, the pastor, cannot forgive any other person's sins. I can't do it. I don't have that power. You hear me? Uh, but another thing is equally certain. It's the great uh, privilege of not only the church, capital C, the body of Christ, um, but it's also the great privilege of pastors to declare and convey the message of God's forgiveness to the body of Christ. You feel that tension? The apostles had the best of all the rights. The 10 guys in this room had the best of all the rights to proclaim this message because they knew Jesus best. So if they believed a person was really repentant, then they could with absolute certainty certainty, proclaim the forgiveness of Christ in their lives. You follow me? Likewise, if they believed that a person was not truly repentant before God, they could also um, say or or at least um, caution that a person may be forfeiting the mercy of God. You follow me? Okay, so... um, I'm not suggesting, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is we have the power to forgive sin, but it does mean we have the responsibility to proclaim the forgiveness of sin, along with warning that if we don't come under the Lordship of Christ Jesus, that we may be forfeiting God's mercy. Does that make sense? So when I'm sitting with somebody and I'm walking with them and they're sharing something, perhaps they're confessing something, I am discerning with them, resting in the Holy Spirit. And when I'm convinced that they are truly laying it down and walking through a repentance process, what am I going to do? I become the face of Jesus, the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, and I proclaim forgiveness. That's part of our job as ministers of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So here's what I want to do as we close. I'm going to do one song. There's some of you uh, that are living in locked doors. You're living behind locked doors. I don't know what they are. I'm not going to ask you to tell me what they are. But I'm going to open the front right here. You go, I can't go down front. People might think I'm weird. Who cares? Stop worrying about other people and start worrying about your walk with Jesus. 
It's time that we actually engage him on a new, deeper level. There's nothing magic about coming up front, but there is something about with all resolution saying, I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm gonna take a step. You hear me? So I wanna do three things. Number one, if you are a person, the Holy Spirit's nudging your heart, there's a locked door that he's put that he wants to open. I want you to come forward as we do this closing song. Just stand here. We're just gonna, we're gonna pray generically. The second thing is there's some of you in here who feel like you are void of purpose. Like this is so important. We need to pray that that would be, that's a lie that should be cracked off of you because you are a person of purpose. If you're in Jesus and he is in, in you, you are a companion and participant with him and bringing the unseen kingdom reality into the here and now. And then the third thing is to receive the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. You might go, Michael, I've never done that before. So here's what we're gonna do. Everybody stand up. If you're online and you're watching, I wanna invite you to do this same thing. This is a simple prayer that we're gonna pray as a church. We're gonna worship in this last song. So if you're someone who go, man, I got, a, I got a locked door that he wants to open, I'm gonna invite you to come forward. If you wanna receive the purpose of King Jesus, you go, I'm living like I don't have purpose and destiny. I'm gonna ask you to come forward. Just stand up here, however you wanna do it. And if you're a person who's saying, I don't know that I've ever received the infilling power of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna invite you to come forward. Or you might even go, I've received the power of the Holy Spirit, but I've gotten lost back into sin and all manner of stuff. And I just wanna come forward and go, man, I'm here. You follow me? All right, let's worship. Uh, prayer team, if you'll make yourself available just in case someone wants special prayer, we're gonna close in a song and then I'll close us in prayer. And if you wanna come forward, this front area is open. Listen to me. For Peter to walk on water, what did he have to do? Get out of the boat. Some of you are needing to walk on water, but you're going to have to do something you've never done before and take a risk to follow King Jesus. Let's worship. Jesus.
pray all around this room and even those who are tuning in online that you would break the power of locked doors in our lives in the name and by the blood of Jesus. And Father, I pray that in companionship and obedience to the Lordship of you, Christ Jesus, that some of us would stand up and move the furniture and unlock the doors and kick the doors open with the resurrection power of Jesus walking out into the light, Lord. Father, I pray for the group of people who's feeling purposelessness, Father, I pray that you would impart to them the very purpose of the King of heaven, the King of all of the earth. Father, that you would impart to them destiny and purpose and they begin to understand how they fit into this larger purpose. And then, Father, I pray for the third group that we called out, those who have not been or experienced the infilling power, the Ruach of God, the breath of God filling their lives. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be people of purpose, people who live outside the walls of our locked rooms and people who live full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we love you. We love this church. We love what you're doing here in our midst. It is all about you, King Jesus. Father, as we go from this place, I pray that this church on this day would see and know and understand, progressively become more, becoming more intimate and deeply acquainted with your person. And then, Father, would you, just like the Father sent you, Lord Jesus, would you turn and now send us out into the world. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.